my name is Tom Waltice. I've been here a few other times, but some people might be new joining us online, not know who I am. I'm the director of Geneva Campus Ministry. Our offices are actually here in the church building, and we've had a great cooperation with One Ancient Hope that we hope will continue out through the years, also as they gather new leadership here as well. One thing I like to do as I'm beginning a message is to just give you kind of word to focus on, but one that can be heard in different ways. So I'm going to give this word, give up just a moment for you to think about it, and then we'll talk about it a little bit as well. The word is wonder. Wonder. Two main ways I think you can hear it is one, I wonder about that. I wonder why that happened. And you may have used that word this week or this year because there's been a lot of things we wonder about we don't understand. Another way you might have thought of it, I hope as well, and that is wonder, wonderful. Wonders. Wow, that's amazing. So it can have that sense of excitement and it can have that sense of frustration and despair. And our lives kind of bounce back and forth between that as well. When I was here a couple weeks ago, I spoke more of that sense of lament in this broken world. And this week has shown it again. But we also need, in order to live and to continue and endure in this world, that sense of wonder, of energy, of excitement. Now I'm going to put another phrase in front of you to see in your own minds. That's why I miss having an audience here to interact with. Uh, I like to preach interactively, but now we're just going to have to pretend we're doing that. But I hope if you're listening at home or if you're outside, you're also interacting, you're listening, you're responding in some ways. Here's the phrase, God is history. How you heard that might make a difference of what you think about history. We're getting ready for school in a strange way. We're uncertain yet of what that all means. Here at the university, students who are going to be arriving, getting ready for classes. Day schools are going to be maybe day schools, maybe not day schools, according to different settings. There's a lot of wonder, uncertainty going on. But as we, we think about education, you might think of history. And according to what your education's been in history, it might reflect how you hear the phrase, God is history. Some of you might have had some unfortunate experiences of learning history. That all it was was a bunch of memorization of dates and names and facts, and didn't seem all that meaningful. 
Now, you do need to know some of those things, but they need to be put in a bigger context. But if you had that sense that history is just a bunch of memorization of things I don't care about, then when you hear God is history, that might go like, yeah, I don't like history. Now, if you had good history teaching that put those inf that information in a context of meaning that says this says something about how the world works and how it continues to work. It says something about our lives, our stories. If you had good history teaching that way, then you might hear that and say, yeah, God is history. Now, you also might ask the question about God. Lorraine mentions we and has been doing the study, I know, online of different names for God. The name God itself is just a very generic title. We need to make it more specific. And how people think about God differs. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, tells a story that when he was a university chaplain at the beginning of his career, so I relate to the story that way as well, he was teaching at a, or a chaplain at a British university where all the students had to meet with the chaplain at the beginning of the year. I, I wish that was still possible or a practice. But the students would meet with him. They would come out of a sense of, oh, I got to do this. And Many students, after talking with him briefly, would say to him, Chaplain, you will probably not see me again this year. And he'd say, oh, why is that? And they'd say, because I don't believe in God. And then he would say, oh, that's interesting. What God don't you believe in? And they might look at him a little bit strangely, but... Then they would say, oh, that, that God that, you know, supposedly created this world, but now just kind of sits above the world some, in some netherland or whatever and just watches what's going on and doesn't like what's going on and is judgmental about what's going on. And, yeah, maybe he hears people's prayers, and every once in a while he acts, but that makes no sense at all. And then he basically, at the end of it all, will make a decision. And the evil people who will send to a place called hell, and the good place he'll send or give some place called heaven. And he said, that makes no sense to me. That's the God I don't believe in. And N.T. Wright would, would say, oh, I understand I don't believe in that God either. And again, the students might be a little surprised. And then maybe a little knowing look came over their face and they thought, oh, this is one of those agnostic or atheist chaplains I've heard about. And Wright would say, no, I don't believe in that God because that's not the God of history. I hope that God is history, is past, is gone, because that's not the real God of history. And so we need to explore how we understand this God of history. 
And that's what Psalm 136 helps us do. It helps us in its proclamation of this God. To interact with this God. Now, as Lorraine was reading the text, it doesn't fully work here without an audience because the text is meant to be interactive. It's meant to be a call and response type text. And I hope that you heard that repeated, repeated, repeated. And maybe you joined in. If you didn't when the reading, I'm going to encourage you to do that either outside or at home in some ways that you still call and respond because that's how the text is supposed to be used. And the text gives us two wonderful key words in it. The first word of the text is the word hoda in Hebrew. Now, I doubt if many of you ever heard of that one. If it rings familiar to you at all, the word hoda, maybe you watch too much morning news television on NBC. And you might think of hoda katvi. It's about the only place I've ever run into that in any way. I thought maybe her name was connected to this Hebrew word since she's of Egyptian tradition, and I thought maybe there was some connection there. I did a little bit of checking, and there is not. Her name in the Egyptian tradition means guidance. In the Hebrew tradition, the word hoda often gets translated in our text as give thanks, and that's okay, but it's not enough. Hoda really means proclaim, declare, profess, state things about this God. In such a way you declare them that it asks for a response. And the text gives us that repeated response. Another key word in the Hebrew language, hesed or chesed. And translators have a hard time with it because it's such a rich and powerful word. Some translators just translates it love. Some his steadfast love. Some his everlasting love. Some his loving kindness, I think was the old translation of it. Some go with his mercy. It, it, it is this word that tries to capture this experience of God and our response of it. Now, the other thing translators do when they look at Psalm 136 is that they add a word in order to make it work better in English. They add a verb, a verb that's not there in the text. The verb they add is something like endures or lasts or continues something like that, in that response that's throughout the, the message of the text. But the Hebrew is just a response. It doesn't need a verb. It's a call. It's a cry out. It's just his love forever. When I think of that word forever, I'm in my mind too, maybe if I say this, it will ring to another, for some of you, infinity and beyond. That's kind of forever. Infinity and beyond. As big as we can think is his love. And so the response that is given in the text is just his love forever. 
You don't need to put a verb with it. It's just a declaration, a celebration, a response when you hear about this God. So in that context, we can look at what the psalmist says about this God. He again begins with a very familiar phrase to the Hebrews. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That phrase occurs about 11 times in the Old Testament. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. When it's repeated that many times, you must think that it was an important part of their culture, of their worship, of their lives, that they heard time and time again. And so they knew what the response was supposed to be. Some of you listening might be out of a call and response worship tradition. I think it's a wonderful tradition. And that's reflected here in this psalm as well. And so, if I say this, maybe some of you know how to respond. God is good. Ah, a few people here did, hopefully listening at home too. You respond all the time. And then, all the time... That call and response, that interaction helps us understand also what goes on in many worship traditions. And it's nothing of tremendously in new content, but it's a re-experiencing of that content. And that's what the writer starts with. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then they respond, his love forever. It's a celebration. And it's not just, as Lorraine said, some generic God. It's the Lord. The unique covenant name of God in the Old Testament. The personal name of God. The interactive, promising, present name of God. And then he goes on and says, but he is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is not only good, he is great. He is above all other gods. Or other concepts of what gods and lords are. He is far greater and far better than all of those. And so he's already established a contrast. Who is this God? And how does he overcome our and our world's false views of God? So that we can really respond his love forever. So he starts with that God and says, now let me tell you about that God. And he says, he who alone does great wonders. Great wonders. That covers much of the rest of the text. That's that wonder of amazement. That's that wonder that even in a terribly devastating storm, there is an amazing power and wonder in it. I don't understand its destructiveness. But it makes me wonder about the nature of this world. And so he starts with, it says, look at this creating God and look at him in terms of the wonders he has created. This world is not just an accident. This world is not just by chance in a strange collection of atoms over eons of time that came together. He says, no, this world is an act of God, a power of God. 
here we contrast probably the most significant contrast in our world today. Is there a creator God or only a materialistic, mechanistic universe? That's the contrast laid in front of us. Now, it's a contrast. It doesn't deny the materialistic elements, but he says in that materialistic elements, you have to cry out the love of God forever. That's what you see in this wonderful world and all the things that God has created. So it's challenging any materialism. It's challenging anything that just says, no, all there is is what is. All that we can see is all there is. But then as we look at, we're going into education and into study. And we say we have a context for all those hard sciences, which may mean two different things as well. It might mean those sciences of physics and of geography and of mathematics that might be harder for some than others. But God loves his world, and in his world we see his love. And as you study those things, you put it in the context of the wonders of God. Then the study of the hard sciences becomes wonderful becomes amazing. And so the context that the writer starts with to understand is God is the creator God. And so he says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And now in your own mind, think of that response. His love forever. Or maybe even say it out loud. Every time I say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, say it in your heart and in your mind, his love forever. That gives us that context as we engage the study of the created world and we engage it with that perspective and that wonder of the love of God. Then the psalmist takes the next step and he says, but it's not just a creator God, it's a saving God. It's a God at work in history. It is a God of history. It is not some deistic God who made it and then watched it happen and sits up in the heavens somewhere, wherever that may be, and just watches what's going on and maybe gets angry about it. No, that's a false God. This is a God at work. This is a God at work in history. Now, history is a messy thing. In reality and in the study of it. History is messy because human beings chose to act apart from God and brought in a great deal of distortions and oppressions. And so when I read the text that he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, at first I go like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like it that there is evil that has to be defeated. But it is always in the context, not of anger and judgment, but it is always in the context of his love that saves. For he brought his people out. 
This is a God that is not a God, first and foremost, of judging evil. This is God, first and foremost, of saving his people. And it is in that context that the psalmist looks at the history and its messiness and its conflict, but in the right context. And so as we study and look at history, we can look at it only from the perspective of the ugliness of humanity, because that's what a lot you see in history. And you can't deny that. But it needs to be in the context. The context gives thanks to the Lord for he is good. He is love forever. And so we have a God who loves physics and astronomy and geography and mathematics because he created it. We have a God who loves interacting with us, even in the messiness of our history. He did not turn away. He enters into the mess. And that's the fundamental meaning of Jesus Christ. He has entered into our messy history to save. And even to suffer the abuse and evil to save. This is the God who loves history because he loves us. And he loves our world. And then the psalmist goes on and he says, not only does he deliver people out of enslavement and in oppression, not only does he save, he also brings them into something. I would often ask my students when I taught the book of Exodus, I said, Exodus, which means the road out, but where is it heading? The book of Exodus ends fundamentally, it's heading into the presence of God, but then being led by the presence of God throughout the next books, they enter into the land. And that land is a symbol of God's work in the world. Fundamentally, he not only brings us out of evil, he brings us home. That's a hugely meaningful and important word, and we're realizing it more and more. Especially if your home has been destroyed or damaged in the last week. Or if you've even been without power and you can't really be at home. We realize what that means to us. If you are homeless, you know what home is. And you long for it. And in many ways, we are all homeless in this broken world. In a human decision to go apart from God, we made ourselves aliens, homeless. But God says, no, I'm bringing you home. In that context, the psalmist rings out against us, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love forever. Because he gives us this vision in Israel as he leads them into the land as a symbol of what he's going to do for all of us and all his world. He's going to bring us back home. And we study that so much as well. And our studies have that context of home. If you're studying economics, the word itself means the laws of the home. 
how do we live at home in the material elements? How do we interact in such a way that we feel at home in how we treat each other? Now, our economics are badly broken, yet we're still working and trying to understand how we can do that better so that more people can be at home and less can be homeless. If you're studying politics, politics is the study of the city. How do we live not only in our own separate homes, but with a group of homes? How do we live home to home and with our neighbors? That's the study that puts it in the context, and it is in the context of give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love forever, because he loves our homes and he's bringing us home. And he says, join me in this. Join me in the economics of this. Join me in the politics of it. Join me in the sociology of this. Join me in the psychology of this. All those, quote unquote, I don't like to phrase soft sciences, are all in the context. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love forever. And when we study this, it's to experience that love of God in it and to extend that love of God as we look at this and explore this to say how can we learn to be at home and bring others in to their homes. And then the psalmist goes on and he says, okay, I've talked a little bit about that God of creation. I've talked about that God who's worked in history in the past. I've talked about the goal of God of giving his people a home, a land. And now he says, I want to bring it to the present and make it powerfully personal. He remembered us in our lowest state. It's the first time it's a direct address. He remembered us. It's not just some God far away. It's not some impersonal God. This is a God that relates to us. And it's not just an individualistic God. It's not just God and me. It's God and his people. It's us, as we join together in that home, we experience the love of God. And we respond and say, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love forever. And that word remember is a hugely wonderful word in Scripture. It shows up in some great places. He remembered us in our low estate, in our need, in our poverty. He remembers us. And that's not just like, oh, yeah, I think about them. When it says that God remembers, that means God is taking notice and God is acting. When Noah was in the ark in the middle of the flood, the story changes when it says God remembered Noah. And then the flood water starts to go down. When Abraham and Sarai are childless, the story changes when it says, and God remembered Abraham and then acted to bring Isaac. When Hannah was childless and prayed to God, the story changes and says, and God remembered Hannah. 
even Samson. Not the hero of Sunday school days, but the oversexed buffoon Samson, who had messed up his life, messed up his power, enslaved himself with his foolishness, still could do something. And the text says, the Lord remembered Samson. The Lord remembers us in our need. And that's what also rings forth. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love forever. Even in the midst of our brokenness and our frustration and our wonders, there is the wonder of the amazing love of God. As we do our education, we look also at how God provides for the weak and the needy. And those who are involved in health care are part of that amazing love of God. Those who are involved in child care are part of that amazing love of God. Those who are parents are part of that amazing love of God. Those who are food providers, agricultural people, are part of that amazing love of God because it says he feeds all his creatures. How does he do that? Through us and working within us, his amazing love, so that it goes out through us. So if you notice, the text has covered pretty much everything we study and do. I was thinking this morning, have I missed anybody? And maybe you can think, has he missed me? Is there an area of study that he's missed or an area of my sense of vocation and calling and service in the world that he's missed? And as I was talking to somebody outside, I realized who I had missed, and even God loves the lawyers. For they are part of his provision. They are part of his living in community and growing in the sense of being at home. They are part of his defending of people that are weak and helpless and in need. If I've yet missed you, it's going to be up to you to figure out where you fit. Do you fit as part of the wonder of the creator God? Yes. Do you fit as part of the saving God? Yes. Do you fit as part of the homing God? Yes. Do you fit as part of the providing God? Yes. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love forever. Now this psalm, is probably a psalm that was written to reflect the Jewish most important feast of the year, the Feast of Passover. At the Feast of Passover, what they would do is tell their story in families or in groups, and they would have the children interacting with that. And that's probably what this psalm shows is that maybe that response, his love forever, was meant to be two simple words in Hebrew because any child by the time they could talk, could say it. We don't, I don't have evidence of that, but it makes a lot of sense to me. 
and that the person would tell the story and keep the, student, the children interacting. You got all the children would hear that and say, his love forever, his love forever, his love forever. And as they said that and said that and said that, it became their song. It became at the heart of their lives, and that's what needs to be at the heart of our lives as well. And as I think of it as a Passover psalm, it makes me think also of the importance of the Passover in the life of Jesus and in our lives. For the Passover lamb. That shows the wonderful extent of this God. This God who is the creator God, yes. But the saving God, the homing God, the providing God is shown first and foremost in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the definition of that Hebrew word chesed. Faithful love. Everlasting love. Covenant faithfulness of God to us. Christ is the picture of this God. That is love forever. One thing I've done for many years, and I wish I could do it here and everybody is here. If you're at home, you can't do it. If you're out sitting out in the, the front of the church, there is a platter that has a bunch of little pins on it that are I am love pins. For decades, I've had these as I've taught. I've handed them out to students. I now here at the university at every place we have a table. Unfortunately, we're not going to have that much this year. We'd always have this basket of pens. They are said in about eight to nine different languages that basically says, I am loved. And I've given this away as just a simple message to say this is who we are. This is what we are about. May that be your message as well. A message so simple that the earliest child can know it. His love forever. And that every child of God needs to continue to experience and express. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love forever. Let us pray.